Thanks for checking out this podcast. Remember, it's presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, Target Center, or XL Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for Minnesota baseball, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. And Ticket King can take care of you for out-of-town concerts, sporting events, and more. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone! Touch them all, Joe Maurer! And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. All of the leaf floors out there in the Legends Club and the concourse blowing the Angels' carnage out of Target Field. After the 0-9 start turns into a 3-9 comeback. They must have been busy. There was a lot to pick up after that series. Is the season back on? Uh-huh. Oh, 0-9, season was off. Well, it's funny. Season was over. Is it back on at 3-9? <laughs> it's funny because on our latest podcast, and I, I wouldn't say I ever became embarrassed to share this, but I was going through and I was doing some office housekeeping the other day. And I ran across the title of that podcast that we did last week, Phil. What, when was, it was, the, what was the title it of was that? It was 0-7, and it was still a non-zero chance the Twins make the playoffs or whatever. And it felt, no, it was 0-6. They were 0-6. I think we did it before their first home game. Did anyone even click on or listen to that podcast? Unlikely. Super unlikely. But what I will say is that it's funny how much my perception changed from 0-6 to 0-9. I went from, all right, it's a bad start, but they can overcome this to, Holy smokes, they should fold up the tents and call off the rest of the season. And hire Ron Garden, hire back. <laughs> oh, wait, they just did today. <laughs> oh, wait. Um, it is funny how much the perception changed, but like that, uh, that is the swing of the season. The math really does change in the first two weeks. And then to, to win their next three, yeah, is nice, but they're going to need a lot of streaks like that. They're going to need wins in bunches the rest of the way to even make this thing competitive. Well, actually, I know it's like another small sample size, but... What they did against the Angels kind of feels like what they wanted to do going into the season, which is get a decent but not lights-out performance from your starting pitching. Ricky Nolasco gives up like four runs and in seven innings, and you can kind of live with that. And Gibson gives up a couple hard hit balls early in a home run and whatever, but then your bats come around, and you've loaded this lineup up so that when Arcia plays, which we should get into him, by the way, because you and I have been beating that drum all offseason, and we should just spend a half hour patting ourselves on the back for <laughs> clearly being right about him. It, it just kind of feels like their game plan going into the season was, we're not going to have a lights-out bullpen, nor will we have a lights-out pitching staff, but we're going to outscore and outslug more teams than, than not. And that's... Not that they were winning games 9-7 to against the Angels, but they were getting late-inning home run from Byung-Ho Park, late-inning extra base hits from Oswaldo Arcia, doubles from Miguel Sano. It felt more like what they wanted to have happen going into the season before they started 0-9 and train-wrecked it. Yeah, and I don't think the baseball was really all that different. I think that's going to be something that's lost sort of by... Um, you know, the people that'll swoop in on baseball season in the middle of May and be like, oh, how are the Twins doing? 
I think it'll be lost. No matter where they're at in the standings at that point, people are going to talk about the train wreck of the start. They were 0-9, and they're just battling tooth and nail to even try to come back to relevancy. And they're still in the midst of that battle. Like 3-9 and as we tape this podcast heading into the Brewer series doesn't <laughs> like erase that deficit. In fact, it's still very obvious. Um, they're six games below 500. They've already lost ground in the division, and uh, it's getting late early, as the great Yogi Berra once said. Um, but the baseball was relatively similar. The, the Twins didn't really embarrass themselves in the midst of that 0-6 stretch. The bullpen was bad. They coughed up probably three games that I think they should have won. The offense obviously was anemic. They weren't scoring, but they were also something crazy like 5 for 66 with runners in scoring position, which is a bad look, it's not good, and it's especially not good when you're striking out all the time, but like eventually that was going to start to come back to normal. The Twins weren't going to hit 0-55 mm-hmm. with runners in scoring position this season. So um, on balance, was it bad baseball for the first 10 games, 9 games? No, but the losses do matter, the losses do count. I think it's interesting that it was basically the same style of baseball, the same caliber of play that they just happened to come away with three close wins against the Angels. Oswaldo Arcia is a really interesting case. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, you and I got into this on the radio show today, too. But just to expand on it, he mashes right-handed pitching. Sure. And that's not just, you know, that's if, if you go back and look at his first couple years in the big leagues, two partial seasons, and I believe it was a, it was a total of 30 or 31 home runs against right-handed pitching. Of the 34 or 35 career home runs. So there is such a huge gap. And I think for him to be a complete player in the big leagues, he has to be able to figure out left-handed pitching. But if we're just looking at Arcia against right-handed pitching, it's amazing that they didn't go into the season during that 0-9 stretch and say, okay, there's a lot of uncertainties here with Byung-Ho Park, Eddie Rosario probably. I know he's a left-handed batter too, but he's actually better against left-handed pitching than um, uh, than right-handed pitching. If there's a chance four or five times in the first week and a half to get Arcia some at-bats against right-handed pitching, we should leverage that strength. And they waited until nine games into the season really to leverage that strength. But it's not surprising to me that he comes through Saturday and Sunday this week. He's a guy that mashed every single level of the minor leagues, 330, 335 in some cases at AA and and a couple of his stops at AAA. And, um, And the numbers he put up, even with the flaws and with... The, the mediocre to bad plate discipline his first couple of years, he's still a young kid, man. He's not. He's going to turn 25, which may seem like he's been around for a long time, but I think he should be playing almost all the time against right-handed pitching, and what he did against those righties over the weekend only validates that notion. Well, let's not undersell it here, Phil. It wasn't a discussion on the radio. We got into a fight. Well, but you, It was you a cho- fist fight. But you chose to play devil's advocate, even though you agree yeah. that he should be in the lineup <laughs> against right-handed pitching. All right, so you've <laughs> uncovered my tactics. Uh, but it was one of those fights. It was funny. Uh, you and I are friends. We get along well, and we see baseball in pretty similar ways. But it was funny. I think for the first time since I've been coming on the Mackey and Judd show, when it started, what, two years ago, you called me by my first name when addressing me. Like, you'll introduce me on the show. Hey, Derek Wetmore's coming up. He covers the Twins for the website. In a raised voice. You said, but Derek! Yeah. As you led into a point, and I couldn't Actually, help Actually, it was more think, pointed than that. It was Derek. 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 I couldn't help but think of, that's like a parent, you know, using your full name. 
Derek Henry Wetmore, go to your room. Is that like, what your middle name is, Henry? Yes, Derek Henry Wetmore. Mine's Wayne. So we both have the sort of like three generations ago old man <laughs> nicknames. <laughs> Thought about maybe just making that my first name, like um, James Brian Dozier has done, and doing like... Uh, Jim by, Dozier is his name, huh? Yeah, going by uh, Jimmy, Jimmy D. Going by um, Henry Wetmore. Hank Wetmore. Yeah, Hank. Actually, Hank is a great baseball name. You can call it's me Hammer and Hank if you want to. Hank Aaron, Hank Sauer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my point to you, the reason why, and you were playing devil's advocate, and I think there's, there's a devil's advocate. Do you want to just unpack the whole thing? Yeah, so uh, here, here's my point. It, it bothers me when a guy who is 21, 22 years old, 23, his first two seasons in the big leagues, when he gets put so far in the doghouse, and it's unwarranted. I mean, this is a guy that was one of your best-hitting prospects for five years, all the way up through the system, right there, neck and neck with Miguel Sano. A little bit older. He's a year or two older than Miguel Sano is. And this is a guy that, after dominating each level of the minor leagues, comes up and shows promise, and even maybe, maybe more than promise in the big leagues, by hitting 14 homers in a half season year one, 20 homers in a partial season year two, Comes into year three, injury in play. They, did, they had kind of a roster crunch situation. He had options left. They didn't like the way he came out of the gate. Swinging, kind of a weird approach, swinging at too many pitches. So they send him down. And instead of saying, we're going to send you down for a rehab assignment, then call you back up, they said, we're going to send you down until for the third time you prove that you can mash AAA pitching. Yeah. And then it just became this doghouse scenario that I don't think was warranted. I think even though he was immature and maybe had a bad approach at the plate for a period of time and developed some bad habits. I don't think the label that was put upon him by the organization, I mean, every time you brought him up, it was, yeah, he's, he has a terrible approach in AAA and he's nowhere near the big leagues. He didn't even get a sniff at the end of the season last year. Right. So um, I just put him in the doghouse a little bit, but to shut the door on him last year didn't make much sense to me. I think that that, that was a usable asset that they really – uh, and, and they'll say it's on him. If he mashes AAA pitching and has a better approach at the plate, they'll say that he would have earned his call-up. I say that he probably felt stale and stagnant and bored at AAA because he had already conquered those levels and was on the way to conquering major league pitching. Sure. And I think it's human nature to maybe get bored and feel stale when you've already conquered the major leagues to that extent as a 22-year-old. Sure. For, for an 805 OPS against right-handed pitching, which is basically Mark Teixeira, against right-handed pitching. So first, let me back this up. If you listen to the Touch Em All podcast at all over the winter, you'll know that I'm bullish on Oswaldo Arcia. I use that word, that phrase, a dozen times. People make fun of me on Twitter. Um, I'll say, like, hey, I really like uh, you know, Snapple or whatever. And people are like, are you bullish on Snapple? <laughs> because I said I'm bullish on Oswaldo Arcia so much. So this isn't to just uniformly dismiss everything you just said or, like, um, poke holes in that argument because we're on the same side of the fence here. But an interesting thing to me is that uh, Terry Ryan, the other day when he was talking with the media, he told us that sometimes he forgets that Arcee is still just 24. Sometimes he forgets that he's supposed to be a young and immature hitter. And I think what you're seeing, the fact that he drove that game-winning hit to the other field, it's not that he hasn't always had that power. He just hasn't ever tried to channel that because... To him, it's more fun to get a fastball in your wheelhouse, open up the hips, and just let it fly. Wasn't his home run to left field, too, on Saturday? Uh, when he hit it, I'm trying to think exactly. It was the left center bullpen, actually. Yeah. He hit it out to the second bullpen. And he's got power everywhere. Uh, the Twins will tell you that, too. Um, but what's more fun 
is clicking on a fastball, just like, you know, jumping your foot in the bucket and trying to hit a fastball on the inside part of the plate and ripping it out to right field. You could hit a home run a long ways that way. Ask Jim Tomey. But what the Twins would like for him, and I think they get criticized for this unfairly a lot because of the whole Ortiz thing and the way David Ortiz um, was obviously released and then went on to be a superstar in Boston. Um, and he criticized them for saying that they tried to make him hit to the opposite field. And, well, all right, the Twins get made fun of for that all the time. David Ortiz to this day remains a good hitter to the opposite field. So if they were, like, just dug in their heels as that it, against, you know, just being a pole hitter, well, then good for them. They deserve a lot of praise for how good of a hitter David Ortiz became. Um, I think they see not necessarily the same talent trajectory, but the same idea of, do you want to be a pull hitter who strikes out all the time? Or do you want to be a hitter who can hit 20 home runs to your pull side, but then you're also going to hit 10 to center and left field? And by the way, instead of being a 230 hitter with that power, you can also be a 280 hitter or whatever and get on base at a 320, 330, 340 clip. And by the way, once you start to hit these bombs, pitchers are going to start to pitch around you. They're going to try to get you to nibble. And you can also start to draw a lot of walks. I think when the Twins see a talented player like Oswaldo Arcia or Miguel Sano, for that matter, sometimes it's frustrating for Twins fans the way they handle these players. But they do have a, a – it's like this bigger picture. It's like I'm not hard on the people that I don't think are ever going to make it. I just kind of let them do their thing and play up their strengths. The guys who I think are going to be great, I'm extra hard on. And that, I think – comes across in the wrong way sometimes. I think they've done that with Oswaldo Arcia. I think they picked him as a talent that could really be a you know, game-changing hitter. And we'll so, see how it plays out. Am but. I wrong on this? Because I was only down there for a week in spring training this year. You were down there for almost the entire time. It felt like when I'm adding up the math from last year and him basically just being cast away last year yeah. and then spring training because he's out of options, out of minor league options, yeah. it felt like they were really close to being done with him. It felt like they were close to putting him on waivers or seeking some 50 cents on the dollar trade yeah. and just clearing up a roster spot for somebody else. See, I don't feel that way. And I know... Because um, if that was portrayed wrong, then okay, then that's, that's an incorrect perception. I the reason why I'm a little bit irritated with the organization is because it feels like, whoa, you almost just had David Ortiz light slip away sure. and go hit. Because I guarantee you the minute he gets picked up by some team... Maybe he sits against some of the tougher lefties, but if he plays every day, he'll be kind of a hack in left field, but he'll hit 30 home runs. Sure. He will hit 30 home runs, and he will so hit too. 30 doubles and be one of the best power hitters in baseball. I think he will. He does have the 30 homer pop for sure. Um, an interesting thing that I came across in spring when I was doing some research on Arcia is actually, and trust me, this isn't a humble brag. I just stumbled into it accidentally. Uh, I shouldn't have phrased it this way, but now here we are. I wrote a piece last year on Arcia and the way Paul Molitor was handling him. Well, they didn't like his at-bats against lefties. Not just that he wasn't getting hits, but like he was kind of embarrassing himself against some of the better left-handed pitchers. All right, fine. A lot of left, young left-handed hitters struggle with that. Um, Max Kepler struggled with that for a while. And um, I thought it was interesting, and, and in the piece it basically just talked about how Molitor was so mindful of that. He is a future core piece to the lineup who has this glaring deficiency. So he would play him against right-handed hitters, and he would pick matchups.
for left-handed hitters. He's not going to face Chris Sale. We'll find somebody else to play right field mm-hmm. that day. Uh, or, well, Torrey Hunter was playing right field. We'll find somebody else in left. We'll, we'll make this work. We'll piece together a lineup that does not include Arcia. But Johnny Dank's coming to town, and Arcia's in the lineup because he's going to get to see someone from the left side that doesn't have the intimidating stuff, that doesn't have all the weird... Um, yeah, I'll, call him, I'll call them tricks for Chris Sale. They're not tricks, but you know what I mean. Like an elbow coming out over A lot here. of elbows, a lot of knees, really lanky. It's coming out from a weird angle. It's just it's tough to pick up. You've mm-hmm. seen Byung-Ho Park struggle with that from both sides. Guys like uh, Darren O'Day who come down from the side, I don't know how much side-winding Byung-Ho Park has seen in his career in the KBO, but based on his plate appearance against Darren O'Day in Baltimore, it looks like he'd never seen anyone throw from three-quarters or below. Um, so... What I'm saying is that like, when you don't have that experience, you don't have those reference points, you, maybe sometimes you tend to compound your struggles. You tend to play things up like, well, I can't hit lefties, and it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy. Mulder was working him in, finding good lefty matchups for Arcia that he thought he could thrive in, and then he got hurt. And that kind of sucked for Arcia. And then, weirdly, which I never quite understood, the Twins basically booted him. After he got hurt, he was on a rehab assignment in Rochester, and they said, why don't you stay in Rochester, actually? Now, yeah. Torrey Hunter changed the math on this because it was sort of an outfielder that was just going to be given as many plate appearances as he wanted or needed. But I do think it's interesting on an otherwise mostly young team, there's this young, interesting, talented player who might be a future core piece in the lineup, not to sell him too high, but like that's his future, that's his potential mm-hmm. if he fulfills it. Uh, sort of got cast aside a little bit and, and wasn't considered in the same wave of the, well, Rosario, the Max Keplers. Um, keep in mind, Kepler got a September call-up. Arcia didn't even get a phone call. Right. So I think in a long way of celebrating this guy, here's a, here's a 24-year-old masher with a ton of power, a ton of potential, who's frankly probably always just going to be bad in the outfield, and you're going to have to live with his shortcomings. Um, but that isn't valueless and that the Twins could do well to, to get some production out of in 2016. I think he's got a chance to be Jason Kubel. Sure. Jason Kubel, not a rangy outfielder. New Jason Kubel. Not Jason Kubel before he tore up his knee in the AFL. Because Jason Kubel, people forget this, he was on the same career trajectory in the minor leagues as guys like Joe Maurer and Justin Morel. And, and, here's a, and Jason Kubel, awful, for the most part, against left-handed pitching for the majority of his career. A couple different seasons, he started to figure out how to make some contact. But uh, Jason Kubel, I've got the numbers in front of me right, right here. He hit 140 career home runs. 119 of them came against right-handed pitching. Sure. And now you're facing more right-handed pitchers, too. But uh, the OPS splits are about 150 points apart between lefties and righties. Makes sense. So I don't think you have to be a comp- – and there's a lot, a lot of left-handed hitters are – great again they feast on right-handed pitching which you face about 75 percent of the time sure and then you just sort of try to stay afloat against the left-handed pitchers so if if Oswaldo Arcia is just a more flamboyant personality version of Jason Kubel that's a win for the twins yeah now here's where we can spin this into the other part of the conversation I want Arcia right now in the lineup against almost every right-handed pitcher I just I want to see this guy for a month or two and see if he's legit Okay, so he plays left field, or he DHs, but now you're bumping Park out of the lineup, which, you know, right Fine. now you're, you're probably... Yeah. I think you could bump him out once in a while, especially against some of the tough right-handed pitchers. Yeah, there are some days he's just overmatched. Yes. But there's going to be times where Miguel Sano plays right field, Oswaldo Arcia plays left field, and yeah. now you've got the worst defensive outfield 
pretty much in Twins history. Sure. You've got a, you basically have two tree stumps that you place gloves on and hope yeah. that Byron Buxton can catch everything else. Um, so now, if, if that's what you're committing to, and now Rosario is either on the bench or um, or playing center field, depending on the pitching matchup, and Buxton's on the bench, yeah. now you've committed to outscoring your opponent or hoping for a pitching performance that doesn't involve outfielders catching fly balls in the gaps. You right. Know? There's just a lot of ways that you can go right now with different lineups based on matchups and guys who aren't clicking. It'll be interesting to see how these next, I don't know, three to four weeks play out with the Rosarios, the Buxtons, Ploof, and right. whether he's out for a long time. Well, we're going to see a lineup here. This is Monday afternoon recording this. I'm curious to see even Monday's lineup. You know, we're going to see it in a few minutes here. Um, I am interested to see how the Twins are going to handle the Byron Buxton, Eddie Rosario, Max Kepler, Oswaldo Arcia-Logjam. Because to me, Miguel Sano is in the lineup, right field, every single day, doesn't matter. Um, that or That's not necessarily how I do the lineup. I think that's how the Twins are going to do the lineup. Miguel Sano, first guy we write down. Well, okay, then you've got to figure out the rest of it. And to me, against a right-handed pitcher, which you'll see against the Brewers, Arcia is in the lineup as either the left field or DH. You've got to figure that out. The way Eddie Rosario and Byron Buxton are swinging right now, they do not belong in a major league lineup. Not only are the numbers not there, specifically for Rosario, the approach is terrible. I do not like the way he approaches at-bats. And if you get him, it's like 1-2 the other day, and the pitcher tried to bury a fastball. And I don't mean bury in the strike zone. I mean tunnel it under home plate. And Rosario swung over the top of it for strike three. That wasn't the, the check swing he was mad about. No. Right? That was a different bit. That also bounced in the dirt. Yes. Actually, when he, when he freaked out at the third base umpire in Sunday's game, I Which think he, he probably, had a point because he was right. it was yeah. a bad call. Yeah. But, dude, that pitch bounces. There's no need to even if get that close. If you're offering at that pitch, right. your approach is he's so hyper-aggressive at the plate. Yeah. And pitchers know it. Well, if you're a pitcher, you should never throw a fastball over the plate to Eddie Rosario. Right. I, I, I hate to criticize him like this because I think, on balance, he's a good player. He helps them in left field. He's he helps them player. in center field. And I've talked with people within the Twins organization, whether they're – whether they lean towards scouting evaluation or lean, lean towards statistical evaluation, consistently say Eddie Rosario can improve his approach at the plate. Now, I would contend, okay, good, because he needs to to be a player in this league. Last year what he did was, was great, but the 290 on base percentage and all the strikeouts and never walking is basically rarely on base, and when he was on base, it was for extra bases, which good for him that he turned in that kind of anomaly of a season. But I don't think that's a formula for long-term success. Doesn't he, do you remember when Jeff Francoeur came up 10 Frenchie, years ago? Of course. And he, very similar. First, The first splash was kind of a partial season, young player, and pitchers didn't really have a book on the guy yet, and he swung at everything, and he never drew walks. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying you have to be out seeking walks, but it's kind of a product of you not falling into pitchers' traps. You're looking for good counts, looking for good pitches to hit, and if you're not doing that, you're going to see a lot of strikeouts, and you're not going to see any walks. Yeah. And Frank Hoor hit three three something in his first season. He was a he was a good plus outfielder with a laser arm in the outfield. A very exciting player. A lot like Rosario. A lot of outfield assists, extra base hits. Hmm. Kind of came out of nowhere. Was exciting. Out, so a lot of commonalities there. Corner outfielders. And then once their second and third year hit, especially for Frank Hoor, his second and third year, pitchers figured him out. He wasn't adjusting. Wasn't drawing walks. That's the key with Sano and Rosario this year. Mm-hmm. They the book is now out. Okay, so now pitchers know that they can spike breaking balls to Rosario. They can throw fastballs from the letters on up to Miguel Sano, and he's, at least based on what he's done so far, mm-hmm. unlikely to do much damage with those pitches. 
Now can they start to either lay off those pitches or find a way to hit those pitches? Right. And, and to this point, really, they haven't. Correct. Both and, of them. Yes. Yeah. So I think, I think Sano gets a longer leash than Rosario just because no question. he is the higher, the more highly touted guy. Yeah. Probably does more damage uh, when he's at his best. Not probably. He does do more damage. And, quite frankly, if you really needed to, you could put Sano at first base or third base if you really wanted to. Rosario... He's, he's pretty much branded as an outfielder, and you've got Kepler in the wings. You've got Buxton over here. You've got Arcia, so, yeah. and, and Sano's playing outfield right now. Right. So to my earlier point, I would put Arcia at either left field or DH. I'd figure out whether I'm benching Park or Park's in the lineup, and if Park's in the lineup, then fine, Arcia's in left field, and I'm going to accept the defensive trade-off to have those couple mashers in the corners. And then I've got to figure out, between these three guys, I would include all three of them in this discussion because I don't think we've seen enough of Kepler. Do you want Max Kepler, Eddie Rosario, or Byron Buxton in center field? And I play matchups with those three. Mm-hmm. I suggested that on Twitter, and I had some people saying, you know, Buxton's not up here to sit. That's fine. Then if you don't think he's ready for the lineup and you don't think that he's valuable enough as a defensive replacement, pinch runner, um, guy that can come in late in games. I mean, he scored the winning run the other day uh, in the Twins walk-off on Sunday. If you don't think there's enough value in that and you also – judge that he's not ready to be in the everyday lineup, then he should be leading off for Rochester right now, playing center field. And that's a harsh reality because they wanted Buxton to have turned the corner. So far, he hasn't. So far, Eddie Rosario hasn't. Um, the book's out on, you know, the jury's still out on Kepler, I should say, because we don't, we don't really know. We haven't seen much of him. I like Kepler, um, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, on, on Rosario, just to kind of put a bow on that point, I, I hate to criticize him because I think he is a plus player, and long-term, I think he has a future in the Twins lineup. I think he's going to be a part of their core going forward. But right now, it looks to me like he thinks he's Vladimir Guerrero, and unfortunately for Rosario and the Twins, he's not actually Vladimir Guerrero. He wants to be a good bad ball hitter when what he should be is, like every other hitter, forced to lay off bad pitches. Right now, he hasn't shown the ability to do that. Yeah. I think he has so many, if, if he just reins it in a little bit, if he's capable of doing that. Oh, the skills is, are there. He can still be, lot. And he might think that his advantage is being able to hit bad balls. Kirby Puckett was kind of a bad ball hitter, but for every great bad ball hitter you can name, whether it's Kirby Puckett or Vladimir Guerrero, or they can go outside the strike zone and golf one. Ichiro in his prime was able to do that. You can name another 53 guys mm-hmm. who tried to be that or weren't good enough to identify some of those pitches and their careers went nowhere. Yeah, uh, another guy who expands the strike zone too much and as a result has been buried in the organizational depth chart, Kenny's Vargas. There's another guy who fell in love with yeah. hitting long home runs, and it kind of goes back to our Arcia point. I don't know that Vargas really gets as... as uh, so I don't think he's treated really as harshly as Arcia was at times um, because I don't think that the skills are there. Frankly, I just don't see Vargas's ceiling as anywhere near what Arcia's is. Arcia... And I don't want to. I don't want to put numbers on it because, like, obviously, I'm not a scout. I haven't been following these guys through the minor leagues and trying to project their future. But like, would you be shocked if Arcia was a 275 hitter with a 320 on base who could hit 25 to 30 home runs a year? No, like, I think that's. I think that's kind of his trajectory. Right. Yeah. Those are numbers to me that seem very reasonable. Kenny Vargas, the upside I could see for him is if he ran into. 17 fastballs in a year, he'd hit him out and he'd strike out in 35% of his play yeah. appearances. I, 
I don't see a complete hitter when I see Kenny's Vargas, and I watch these guys take batting practice. Not that you can learn a ton from that, but, like, Vargas is very good at getting a pitch where he wants it, where he can extend his arms, and pulling it out to right field. Mm -hmm. The guys who are actually great hitters, though, you watch the Mike Trouts take batting practice, Albert Pujols, they're machines. Joe Maurer is a batting practice machine. They can hit a line drive very hard to the opposite field. And I'm not saying that every hitter has to do that to have success. We've seen Brian Dozier have success without that ability. But it's a huge boost. I think it's a boon to your production if you're capable of smoking the ball the other way and, by the way, smoking the ball up the middle and smoking it to your pull side. Guys who can do that are good, long-tenured Major League hitters. And I think Arcia has shown, at least in this these first couple games that he's been in the Twins lineup, he has that long-term potential. Uh, Joe Maurer, by the way, we should talk about him here okay. too because yeah, he, he's been kind of good at the plate. He has. I'm gonna I'm gonna bust out. We we do go into some stat geek talk on this podcast probably more than uh, other baseball related content. So here's one for you. Joe Maurer's career line drive rate is 24. percent That's good. Which is very good. Yes. Anything over 20, percent you're hitting a lot of line drives. 25. Yep. percent That's a that's a a boatload of line drives. Now, this is small sample size alert, and it will regress, but it just tells you how hot he's been. 33% line drive rate so far this season. Yep. So one out of every three balls he hits is a line drive. And he looks point. awesome, too. He's moving around. He's swinging the bat well. The key for him, up until about three years ago, his entire career, up until about three years ago, so up until about 30, he turns 33 here in about a month from now. Uh, he, all- he might be turning 33 this week, I think. I think he actually turns 33 tomorrow, Phil. Oh, does he? April 19th. Wow. And don't ask me why I know that, but I'm pretty sure Joe Maurer's birthday is April 19th. Uh, let me see here. April April 19th. Happy All birthday, right. Joe Maurer. Look at you guys. Did you buy a, uh, a card, or what did you no. get? <laughs> no, not this year. But I will be grand marshaling the parade, I think. That's what, that's what people have told me on Twitter. Well, he, up until about three years ago, did something very rare on a yearly basis, which is walk more than he strikes out. The, the Only the great hitters, yeah. especially in this strikeout era where strikeouts are Mike Trout can be the MVP while leading the league in strikeouts and nobody bats an eye at right. it. It's rare that you have hitters who walk more than they strike out. There's probably only a handful or two in the entire league. And I thought once he started to go over the other side of that cliff where, okay, yeah, the bat slows down a little bit, the averages start to come down a little bit, the strikeouts go up. And again, it's early, it's early, it's early. But he has walked in 15% of his plate appearances, striking out only in 7% to this point. Um, That's only four strikeouts in two weeks of baseball so far. So I go go down this path to say that I don't think the production and the line drives and everything, I don't think they're fluky because it looks like whether it's another year move from concussions or – if the eyes are better. Or the, the sunglasses. Which he hasn't worn yet in a game. In yeah, the, he's done day games with the sunglasses. In the regular season? Yep. Because he definitely skipped a game with the sunglasses. Okay, interesting. In Baltimore. So, I'll but, be honest, I haven't paid like super close attention okay. to it, but I know that he has worn them in a game. Okay, so, but e- either way. I was joking about that, by the way, just to make that clear. The Phil. birthday thing or the... <laughs> <laughs> I was joking about the, the sunglasses being a reason for his newfound production. I, but I wouldn't be shocked if... Like, let's say the sunglasses helped you pick up an extra six hits throughout the course of a year sure. because maybe you can just focus better. Right. That helps your batting average. Big helps time. your on-base percentage. But I'm just saying, like, you watch him play, and he is moving better. He is more athletic. Um, and somebody suggests that he should have been the one that moved out to right field instead of Miguel Sano. They keep asking me that on Twitter. And, like, mm, I don't 
necessarily agree with the premise, but I dismissed it in spring training by saying Sano's probably more athletic than Maurer right now. Maurer just moves around like an old man. Well, then I watched him in spring, and now specifically once the regular season started, he's not that old man anymore. It's like Maurer's turned back the clock a little bit. God, you know what, too? If you would have said before the season, and now we're, our view is tainted, rightfully so, because of 0-9, if you would have said Joe Maurer is going to feel as good as he's felt since right. 2012 or 13, mm-hmm. and the production's going to go back to not, not batting title Joe Maurer, but it's going to go back to being high on base, mm-hmm. productive Joe Maurer. We'll see if he can keep it up over six months because he did show some sports like this last year too. But the question is, can he handle the grind of six months? I would have said, holy cow, if that happens and you've got Sano in the lineup and all these other things. You probably would have said, Dozier, it's happening. Yeah, it's, uh, we probably would have printed some T-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> Went to bed the first time. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, if, if I've said, you know, since he moved to first base, if he can just become Mark Grace, which is around 300, a good on base, a guy who hits doubles and maybe 10 to 15 home runs in that area, if he can do that into his 30s, mm-hmm. 35, 36 years old, then, okay, you might not be worth $23 million, but you would absolutely take that. Some take plus it. defense at first base. So this is much, what we've seen here is much more Mark Grace-like than the last two years at first base. I am not quite ready to thump my chest yet because I realize how early in the season we are. Sure. But everything we've talked about so far should be, Grain of salt. with a, a giant grain of salt and an asterisk. That yeah. It's only been 12 games. A shaker of salt with this statement, but I was on the record a lot this winter as predicting a bounce back from our. I didn't say he was going to be a 410 on base machine ever again, but I put numbers to it when we talked on previous podcasts. I said, I wouldn't be shocked if he's a 365, 375, 380 on base threat. And like I said, it's early. We'll see how it goes, but... I feel more confident in that prediction now, now that I've seen Maurer be this hitter, be who he has been the first two weeks of the season. Um, uh, Like I said, not going to thump my chest, but I will point out that I took a lot of heat um, in comment sections, um, listeners of the podcast, on Twitter, whatever. No one wanted to hear that Joe Maurer might have a little something left to offer the Twins, and so far he's been easily their best player. Uh, a few kind of quick hitters here. I know you actually have to go down to the clubhouse to do your job. Yeah, and, <laughs> one uh, of those, yes. Talk to these Twins players we've been talking about. But uh, real quick here, just a, a few quick things. Let's just comment quickly on these things. Ron Gardenhire is back as a special assistant to the general manager. How could we forget? Which prompted everybody with a computer and Twitter to make jokes about how typical Twins bring him back a member of the country club. I think Confirmation s- bias was one of the things that I saw today, too. I believe some people who have a computer and didn't have Twitter actually created a Twitter account to rip just the Twins to take for this mood. Yes, yes. <laughs> At confirmation bias right. is, the, is the new Twitter yeah. Um, so uh, it, it can be both things. It can be right. both very Twins-like. It is classic Twins to fire someone, of course Bill Smith, to fire uh, Ron Gardenhire, and then kind of, oh, let's, let's, we'll bring you back in and we'll right. find another role sure. for you. I don't think the, uh, the Boston Red Sox are going to be bringing back you know, Terry Francona at any point soon. Great little a job for the past few years, obviously. But yeah. so it is very Twins-like to rehire the guy that you fired. But if a longtime successful former winning manager mm-hmm. knocks on your door and says, yeah, I'd, I'd love to help contribute in some way. I'd love to you take should, 
you should include his voice in the conversation. Be, be a little cynical and say, I'd love to take down another paycheck for another couple of months. <laughs> the uh, other funny thing, too, is he's now going to be doing exactly what Paul Molitor right, was doing right. before Paul Molitor took over for him as Which manager. Which people will probably, you know, they're just going to chastise the Twins. The Twins are unpopular, especially among Twins Twitter. It's weird because I think there are a lot of Twins fans out there who aren't this negative, but there's this, like, there's this, like, poisoned uh, nature of... The four losing seasons do this to a person uh, of just, like, constantly cynical, constantly assuming that the Twins are doing something dumb or wrong or antiquated or backwards. Like, it's just the blanket assumption. It's your, it's your default mindset. Right. Uh, the Twins called Prove up a player. Prove that you're not doing something right. that's in these categories. The Twins called up a player. Oh, great. I bet they called up Doug Bernier. Yeah. Classic Twins. It's like, no, actually, you know, they called, they called up, up Max Polanco, Kepler. Yeah. Or Jorge Blanco. <laughs> this is a good player with a good future, whether it's in this organization or elsewhere. Right. Um, but then if Kepler gets called up, it's, oh, typical Twins. Right. He's not going to play. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like, uh, you know, Twins are calling up a player because they need some infield insurance. Oh, classic excuse to keep Boreos in the minor leagues. It's yeah. like, all right. Um, Within that framework of like how cynical we can be about the Twins, I think it's a good move. I don't. I, I mean, they're going to get criticized because like, well, what does Gardy do? He's just a people person. How can he really help evaluate talent? I've had what people, would you say you do here? I'm a people person. I've Why had, can't you people see that? I've had people in the Twins organization tell me, and keep in mind they're probably good friends and they were coworkers for a long time. So take their bias into account when I relay this information. They say that Ron Gardner is actually a very good evaluator of talent. That he's the first one that said, Brian Dozier, good player, not sure it's going to work out at shortstop. Let's try him at second base. Mm -hmm. And then in another twist of fate or irony, whatever you want to call it, more like coincidence, I think, than irony, to go in and say, all right, Dozier, probably not going to be a shortstop long term, but I think he's got a future in this league, and I think it's as a second baseman. This winter, why don't you go in and try and figure out second base? Who did he work with at second base going over to the Gophers baseball practice facility at uh, uh, Brain, uh, Beerman, yeah. Beerman facilities? And none other than one Paul Molitor helped Brian Dozier then become the second baseman that Gardenhire saw he could become. Um, so, yeah, it's like kind of circuitous, but like Gardenhire can provide value. And I know that's going to be hard for people to realize, to recognize, and, and give him credit where credit is actually due. Did it grow a little stale at the end? Sure. Did he have some very questionable things in terms of in-game tactics? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be the first to admit that. But Gardenhire is also a good baseball guy. Mock that if you want to. It has value in the Twins organization. And um, I guess, personally, I credit them for seeing that value and not worrying about what um, the Twitter sphere is going to say about a move. If like you this. got fired from a place, be it 1500 ESPN mm -hmm. or whatever. Which is looming, by the way. We should point that <laughs> out. Would you go back if they offered you a job a year or two later? How much are they going to pay me? Well, and the, what am I going to do? Right. I would not go back to my old job, but if somebody said, like, hey, the terms are totally different, it's pretty relaxed, you get to just flex your muscles in only your strengths, and we're going to pay you a lot of money based on your experience. Yeah, I would do that, but I think a lot of yeah. people would probably turn their nose up at My knee-jerk reaction would be, it needs to be 100% fully on my terms. Right. Because my, my ego as a professional would, would say, I can, I'll just go do it somewhere else. Right, but guess what? This job is going to be 100% on Ron Gardenhire's terms right. and, uh, and on Terry Ryan's terms. We'll learn more about it today, but here's an interesting anecdote that you and I have talked about in the past. Does not get enough credit. Bill Smith. I like the guy personally. 
He is a failed GM, and he provides a lot of value to the Twins organization. Mm -hmm. All three of those things are true statements. After getting fired from the Twins, you know, as the GM and sort of just reassigned and reshuffling the deck chairs, the Twins were universally panned and mocked. And Bill Smith, behind the scenes, quietly, is a very valuable member of the Twins front office now, working on their facilities in Fort Myers to make them state-of-the-art and becoming one of the more desirable places to play in spring mm -hmm. training, working on their facilities in the Dominican Republic, working on their minor league facility in Fort Myers, doing all of this kind of stuff that's not going to be uh, praised or written about, like, all the time as a, this won a game or this lost a game. But I fully believe that the things Bill Smith is doing right now in the Twins organization is adding wins to the major league roster he in was an a, indirect way. He was, when he was promoted to GM after Terry Ryan stepped down the first time, he was a victim of the Peter principle. He, he never should have been promoted to that level of the baseball ops department. Well, like he wasn't a talent evaluator, scout, yeah. right? And he'd have to go and, and so if there was a trade on the, on the books or if there's a free agent or something, he'd have to go and talk to the talent evaluators around him, which I'm sure all GMs will do that, but yeah. most GMs also have their own basis for talent evaluation as scouts or Terry, analytics or whatever it may if be. If he's seen a player and has notes on a player, he'll go to his notes and he knows his opinion, and then he will talk to a bunch of other people to try and get some sort of consensus because he has that humility of, well, I, th I know what I think, yeah. but who knows? What I think might not be 100% accurate. I might be able to learn some more things from other people. Bill Smith, on the other hand, didn't have that basis to really fall back on. See, I would be worried uh, that Ron Gardenhire is going to come in and just give you bad advice on everyone yeah. now and sabotage you. <laughs> all right, then Gotta be careful about that. Don't, uh, then don't take all of his advice. Yeah, yeah, I really think you guys should probably look at trading this Nick Gordon kid. He sucks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he's a hack. No. I wouldn't even play him anywhere no in the infield, quite frankly. He's a DH. Yeah. Uh, two other quick <laughs> things. Byung-Ho Park hit the longest, according to Hit Tracker Online, yep. the longest ever home run in target field history, 466, mm -hmm. into the new catch bar in center field wow. that was i think we might have adam dunn jr on our hands here a guy who's going to struggle to hit 250 but who might hit 28 home runs 450 plus feet and just be wow. someone that you have to watch at the plate every time he comes up you ever seen those nba clips where uh, there's a crazy like dunk that you know is bound to end up on a poster somewhere and the seventh or eighth man sitting at the end of the bench is like his role on the team is to get really excited, be the hype man when that thing happens, and just hold everybody back. Like, yeah. oh, no, as we're all dancing. And, like, the, keep in mind, there's a game going on here. So, guys, let's get back, get back to the bench. And he's extending both arms out left and right and holding people back. That is how I felt when Byung-Ho Park hit that ball. Yeah. And not just when he hit it, because I was like, oh, that was a pretty hard hit ball, home run, and I'm getting ready to craft my tweet. And then it just kept carrying. It soared and just kept going and kept going. And you and Judd were sitting to my left and to my right. And I was like, oh, my gosh. It was ridiculous. You, you do yeah. not see a ball hit that far in target field very often. In yeah. fact, I had never seen one in my short time covering the team. The only guy that has come close to that, I saw all of the Tommy home runs at target field. He hit the top of the flagpole in right field at one point. Yep. He hit a ball halfway up the third deck in right center above the scoreboard at one point. Yeah. And he also was the only other guy that I've seen hit a ball over that batter's eye before that trendy new bar was there and they had the new limestone. Yep. He hit it kind of just to the right above the batter's eye. I was eye. there for that one, and I remember thinking, like, I could cover the baseball for the next 30 years and not see a baseball hit yeah. that far, unless Never they changed thought. the bat and ball technology. Never thought anyone could hit a ball there. And then finally, I uh, had a chance to catch up with Glenn Perkins on our radio show. And it sounds like he doesn't really have a timetable, but he got a second opinion on the shoulder. No surgery yet, but they're going down the rehab path. 
and he'll start throwing sometime in the next two or three weeks. He said, when we asked him, is that two or three week timeline still in play? He said, definitely on the longer side of that. So I would guess month, yeah. maybe more than a month by the time he starts throwing again, ramping it up. Sure. Rehab assignment, if uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain rehab assignment 100% yeah. if he's going to come back. But he left the door open and said, if I don't get the explosiveness back, then we'll have to have more conversations, which he doesn't, he doesn't want to think surgery right now, but... Obviously, shoulders, you never know. Right. He's had some other issues with back and neck that have kind of left his shoulder vulnerable. So they're going to be without Glenn Perkins for at least a few weeks, maybe a month, maybe longer. There's really no timetable right now. That hurts. Um, yeah. The rest of their bullpen will definitely need to step up because they didn't really construct it with this in mind. Um, Kevin Jepson will need to be better. Trevor May will need to be better. Michael Tonkin will need to be the Michael Tonkin that he was on Sunday against the Angels, striking out Filthy. four over two innings, including Mike Trout and Albert Pujols, um, that was an incredible performance from Tonkin. Um, I'm skeptical if this unit is that good without Glenn Perkins, but we'll see. Uh, you know, I'm willing to be patient and wait and see what they do because I think if you do get Perkins back, it's a big boost uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I think they probably should have planned better. I think they should have had a bullpen in mind that said, well, what if Perkins goes on the shelf in the first two weeks of the season? That was always a lingering possibility. Why didn't you bring up the bullpen during the offseason? Now you yeah. speak up. <laughs> it's, like we, it's like we should have talked about it on a podcast. Hindsight's 2020, yeah, right? Classic. Wait. Hindsight hero. Stay tuned for 60-second AP News headlines. Call of Duty Modern Warfare is here, and so is Mountain Dew. Roger that. Now you can unlock in-game rewards like only Dew can. Wait, what rewards? A Dew Operator Skin. Man, I love Operator Skins. Dual double XP, and even Call of Duty points. You're kidding me. Double XP and Call of Duty points? This is incredible. I can't believe it. This Soldier, get a hold of yourself. Oh, roger that. Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndugaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. residents 17 plus. Call of Duty points available on 12 and 24 packs and free 20 and 23.